Do you remember reading Grandfather's Journey by Alan Say? I love the book. I adore Alan Say's work and the watercolor illustrations are so amazing. I'm always in awe when I see it. That's Melissa Ewi, author and illustrator of the I Can Read series, Gigi and OGG, and more. Melissa has her own copy of Grandfather's Journey, one she remembers reading to her son, Jamie. And he's in college now, so I had a children's book collection long before we had him, but I do remember reading it to him. And I just remember having a connection with the story because we have a similar background, yet so very different. I'm Lisa DeSaro, and this is Remember Reading. Now, on its 30th anniversary, we're remembering Alan's masterpiece, Grandfather's Journey. Alan is also the author and illustrator of The Innkeeper's Apprentice, Kozo the Sparrow, Kamishi by Man, and many more. And today, we have Alan himself as our very own Journey's Guide. I asked him to reflect on what the book means to him today. I feel like one of them. By that, I mean... It feels to me like a story, like a folktale that's been around all my life that I've known about, like Peach Boy and the old man who makes cherry trees blossom, all these famous fairy tales. And I suddenly realized at times that, my goodness, I wrote and illustrated that book, which comes to me as almost kind of a shock. Grandfather's Journey is its own kind of folktale. It may be in part because it's a true story, following Alan's grandfather from boyhood to adulthood as he immigrates from Japan to the United States and back. Illustrated with watercolor, the paintings verge on photorealism while maintaining an ethereal, soft, outside-of-time quality so characteristic of the medium at its best. It exists as something more real than fiction. The memory of its creation is a happy one, Alan tells me. The story came to me, as I say in the foreword of the anniversary issue, in a very short span of time. It's happened only twice in my life. That was one of them. But I did spend two and a half years painting the pictures. And those two and a half years were probably my happiest two and a half years of adult, my adult life. And I owe that to Tree of Cranes the one book prior to the publication of Grandfather's Journey, which freed me from worrying about rent and my daughter's tuition. Tree of Cranes, a story about a boy's first Christmas in Japan, was Alan's bold return to painting. It's the book that changed his life, he says. He had been living as a photographer for some time when he made the switch. And after Tree of Cranes, Alan got to work on Grandfather's Journey. And for two and a half years, I serenely sat in a bachelor appointment in San Francisco and painted the pictures. I didn't think that the book would sell at all when I was working on it. It was something I simply had to do. And I had given up my long career, 25-year career in photography, and I was just painted the picture. I realized that I'm really a painter, which I had been in denial 
in most of my adult life, young adult life because I got tired of poverty. Alan was a painter again. But Alan's relationship to the book itself may not be what you expect. In fact, his relationship to his grandfather may not be either. How do I feel about grandfather's journey? I feel rather impersonal about it, just kind of an outs- the eternal outsider that I am. I told a very personal story, and I actually didn't know my grandfather very well. Needless to say, the relationship isn't one of nostalgic photo album memories, which is interesting, considering that the first two paintings in the book resemble photographs. In the first, Alan's grandfather is boyish, a young man in traditional Japanese clothing. In the next, he's changed into a long peacoat and bowler. This is the image on the cover of the book. The dark backdrop of the first portrait changes to the open ocean. His journey begins. It goes like this. My grandfather was a young man when he left his home in Japan and went to see the world. He wore European clothes for the first time and began his journey on a steamship. The Pacific Ocean astonished him. The image on the water is especially evocative of the between-worlds feeling explored in the book. He is literally between worlds, and in a foreign wardrobe after all. But there's another layer of distance. Alan's grandfather looks directly at us from a painting of a photo. I imagine Alan painting it, trying to see his grandfather, learn his expression, see beyond it into the life of the man on the page. I met him very few times in my life because my mother had been disowned by her own mother, that is to say my grandmother, who was really a horrible woman. And the poor man traveled on foot. He was peripatetic most of his life and walked all over Japan. And on rare occasions, he would suddenly show up. Anyhow, I knew him very little, but I, the times that I met him, he was the only member of my family that I truly loved. And the book is kind of a, a dedication to him a person that I knew so little, but I identify with him, an outsider. I remember being struck by Alan Say's unique family history, you know, having his grandfather who immigrated to the U.S. from Japan and then starting and raising a family here, but then returning to Japan and then because of World War II had to stay and... Then, of course, Alan later immigrated to the U.S. when he was older. The sense of outsiderness that drew Alan to his grandfather is part of what Melissa connected with in Alan's story. Like Alan, and like Alan's grandfather, Melissa's family history is colored by her family's immigration to the States from Japan. It's interesting to me because my grandfather also made that journey. And he immigrated to the U.S. to Hawaii at the turn of the century and raised a family there. And both both of my parents were born and raised in Hawaii, but they were there when World War II broke out. My mom actually saw the bombing of Pearl Harbor when she was a child. 
So of course, they remained and they actually never went back to Japan and we lost contact with our relatives there and they also weren't allowed to speak Japanese anymore. Japanese language schools were closed, so consequently they never really learned how to speak Japanese and they never passed that down to my brother and myself. So that's the more common story, I think, for Japanese Americans here. Most of us haven't grown up speaking the language, so I thought it was fascinating to read about Alan's story. Melissa's work is strongly tied to that history, too. Her parents were kids during World War II, and when they were in their 20s, they moved from Hawaii to California. During the time, the U.S.'s exclusionary attitude toward Japanese Americans was at a new peak. Needless to say, positive representation of Asian Americans in children's literature and in the culture at large was largely non-existent. I was raised in just a small town where there weren't very many Asian Americans at the time. And I just always felt like I stood out and I was different. And books were a refuge for me because I was shy and quiet and I loved to read. But even in my childhood books, I don't remember having any books with Asian American characters in them at all. So yeah, I remember growing up feeling like, oh, I wish I wasn't Asian. (laughs) So that's been a huge thing for me now as an author and illustrator to create books with Asian American characters, even if the story isn't, doesn't have to do with their Asian-ness per se, but I always try to include them in, in my illustrations if I haven't written the story. And yeah, I think it's very important for kids to feel seen. And I want to create the kind of books that I would have loved when I was a kid, if I had access to those. Alan had some trouble accessing books too, though representation was perhaps not the central issue for him. Alan didn't have many books, period. Not until he was eight or so, he says, during the American occupation of Japan. Naturally, the war figured prominently in his youth. We see a clear connection between Alan and his grandfather in the middle pages of Grandfather's Journey. His grandfather returns to Japan from San Francisco just as the war begins. Bombs fell from the sky and scattered our lives like leaves in a storm. When the war ended, there was nothing left of the city and the house where my grandparents had lived. So they returned to the village where they had been children. It's a difficult subject for a children's book, but an important one. The best stories, of course, reflect our world back at us in some way, including its harsher realities. In Melissa's book, Gigi and Ogigi, she offers exactly the kind of representation she had so longed for as a child. Her story is also about an intergenerational relationship, this time between a Japanese-American girl and her Japanese grandfather. I actually had the idea for the books many years ago, maybe 10 years ago or more. It was inspired by an early memory, childhood memory I had of when my Japanese grandfather came to stay with my family in California for a while, and he didn't really speak English very well. The book follows the excited young Gigi as she prepares to welcome her grandfather to the States. 
she has all kinds of ideas about the fun they might have together. But their visit doesn't go exactly as she hopes. Like Melissa's own grandfather, Gigi's grandfather is not fluent in English. And like Melissa, Gigi is not fluent in Japanese. As I mentioned before, my brother and I didn't speak any Japanese, so it was really hard to communicate with him. And we just would resort to using English words, some Japanese words, a lot of Hawaiian pidgin and a lot of pantomime, you know, hand gestures. I was really struck by that experience because it was the first time that I'd ever encountered somebody who didn't speak English fluently. And so that was the kernel of the idea for this book. In the story, Gigi begins to learn a few Japanese words. When she struggles to read Ojiji's responses to her attempts to speak Japanese, she becomes self-critical. But when he teaches her to call him Ojiji, a more informal, personal word for grandpa, the two share a tender hug. The book is sort of an idealized retelling of her own relationship with her grandfather, Melissa says. But she struggled with its format for years, until her editor came looking for a story with diverse characters for early readers. So then I thought, oh, maybe I can do something with this old idea that I've been wanting to create uh, a story out of for so long. Grandfather's Journey also might not have been published had it not been for Walter Lorraine, Alan's editor. He might not have even shown up to accept the Boston Globe Horn Book Award, if not for Walter. Walter said, it's the second most prestigious award in book trade, and you're coming to Boston to receive it. And I said, no, I'm not. And he got upset with me. He said, Alan, I'm talking about your career. Walter, I already have a career. I don't need this. Well, I went to Boston for the first time in my life for him. And that's how the whole thing happened. That's when I made a deal with him. He took me to, what is that famous hotel where Dickens had eaten? At the famous Parker House, Walter Lorraine had a private table where, Alan says, Walter entertained his suppliers. And uh, he sat me down. There were only two of us for our lunch. I counted. I think he had at least four martinis. And he said, Alan, if you publish with me exclusively, I will publish anything you write, even if I didn't like it. And even I understood that I was being offered something extraordinary. And I said, well, I have a story about a Chinese bullfighter. And he almost fell off his chair. (laughs) You're talking about blood sport, Alan. It was too late. Alan did get to publish the Chinese bullfighter story called El Chino. Grandfather's journey followed a few years later. He had painted just one image for the book. And in one small moment, one small image would help forge Alan's now much-celebrated career. I had this little booklet, a dummy I had made of Grandfather's journey, which was about the size of a postcard. And I pulled it out. I say this in the forward, and it's absolutely true. I was in his office, that old office, cage elevator and all that. And I tried to tell him the story, and he asked me if I was trying to write a novel. 
And so I showed him the, the dummy, and he looked at it, total silence for about five minutes. Then he closed it, said, let's do it. So, there you are. That's the story behind Grandpa's journey. But what about Alan's story? His journey as an artist actually begins with Noro Shinpei, Alan's favorite cartoonist, and his young protege, Tokita. Alan was just 11 years old when he went looking for Noro Shinpei. He'd read a story in the local newspaper. It was about Tokida, the, the fellow apprentice, who was three years older than I, who had run away from home in Osaka, which is about 300 miles from Tokyo. And I read the story in the newspaper. In those days, in Japan, a newsworthy person who made a story, the person's address was published in the paper. I mean, if, can you believe that? It's kind of a wonderful world in those days. So I, this is how I got Noro Shinpei's address. And that's how the story begins. I'm holding that little piece of newspaper with his address on it, looking for it. And as it turned out, I was living fairly near his uh, studio, first studio. And I thought I was being following the old Japanese tradition of a young boy going out into the world looking for a master, a samurai to serve under. Well, I was following that tradition. But that's not what I was doing. I didn't really realize until I was uh, a young adult, like, let's say 21 or 22, that what I was really doing then was I was actively trying to replace my father with a man that I could admire and love. And I was lucky. And I owe him everything to this day. Next year, I will be 87, the age at which he died. So, that's how I feel about it. The National Center for Children's Illustrated Literature cites Alan referring to Noro Shinpei as his spiritual father. He credits his mentor with his mastery of the art. But it's the whole being an author thing that he continues to question. What's interesting about my being called an author, which mortifies me to this day, I never ever thought of this, especially writing in my second language. I was kind of a natural writer in my own language. I think I was very glib. I read a lot, and I could write very easily. But I felt that with Japanese. And I never really understood. I'm just translating the word that they use in Japanese. I never really understood what that meant. And I was far more interested in drawing. And I never imagined that I'd be one day called an author. And the person who really made me feel okay about this, actually, before I, I was called an author, was Saul Steinberg, whom I interviewed and spent an afternoon. The year in which he became the first and the last artist in residence at the Smithsonian. Saul Steinberg, best known for his New Yorker cartoons from 1941 until his death, 
is often cited as referring to himself as, quote, a writer who draws, unquote. It makes sense that this would be the artist who would convince Allen of his own authorhood. It was 1967, I believe. And for four hours, I sat and listened to this man talk. And it was really wonderful. He said many things, one of which was that he talked about Joyce. And for whom writing, he thought, imagined, was almost gastronomic. He tasted words, and if the word tasted right, he would put it down. And then he said that if he had to do it all over again, he would be a writer. And I told him that I could never do that. And he said, why not? Because I did not have childhood in English, and I would never be able to write dialogue, let's say. It's just not a natural thing for me. And he said, no, no. We have an advantage over the natives. We have to figure out how to say it in our own way. He, he's telling me this in this thick accent. And it was a revelation to me. And I thought, I've been thinking about it ever since. And he was right. But then somebody like Elizabeth Bishop said that no non-native can write poetry, a poem, in the second language. I think she was wrong. We love Elizabeth Bishop, but we agree. Maybe she got this one wrong. It's our personal histories that color our language, whatever language it is. Melissa writes in her own gastronomic way in Gigi and Ogigi, Food for Thought. Gigi and Ogigi's cultural exploration continues, but this time food is in focus. Gigi decides to make breakfast for her family, but she's hurt when Ogigi doesn't eat the peanut butter toast she makes for him. Food preferences, she learns, are tied to culture. And in turn, when she tries one of Ogigi's favorites fermented soybeans, or natto. Well, let's just say she's not overjoyed. I don't think she's going to learn to love natto anytime soon. It, it took me decades. I tried it so many times, and the only reason why this late in life, I, I like it now, is for purely for the health benefits, but now I actually like it, but... Yeah, so I don't think that's going to happen, but I think her worldview is expanded and she learns there's many, many ways to do things and many things to like and dislike, and it's okay to not like everything, but it's important to try things. The next and final story in the Gigi and OGG series is called Perfect Paper Planes, and it explores a new theme, one that is close to home for Melissa. The next story, which isn't out yet, has to do with origami, which I've been doing as a child. It's also about, touches on perfectionism. And I think it has a good message, which is relevant for kids and adults. And is kind of based on my experiences as a child, trying to learn origami and trying to learn something harder than I'm capable of doing. Gigi is going to have quite the challenge in store, and one that holds a mirror to the artistic process. Often, we ask artists to tell us, how did you make that? What's your creative process like? The truth is, 
at least for Alan, that the question is one he's still figuring out how to answer for himself, let alone for the questioner. Well, it's not an easy thing. It's a very complicated, mysterious process that I've been trying to figure out myself. I'm trying to explain it to myself, but I have always drawn story... Well, this was a great lesson that I learned from Noroshinpei. It's storyboards. And it's, it's a more natural way of writing, actually. Well, it's kind of a cinematic thinking, really. You imagine a scene, a tableau, and there's always a story. There's always a narrative, or if there isn't, you can make one. You can imagine it by looking at a picture, any picture. And this is what happens to me. What is, what is the story here? I draw something. In other words, I'm trying to tell you that it's an easier, more direct way of tapping of subconscious rather than using this abstract, these little words by themselves, which mean nothing. Whereas drawing, it's a different thing. It's coming straight out of your head from your dream life. And I find a story there. It's a pattern recognition. If I draw enough pictures, there's a pattern that emerges. That's what storytelling is about, I think. But not every book follows quite the same process. Melissa learned this working on a book written by Mark Tyler Nobleman called 30 Minutes Over Oregon, a Japanese pilot's World War II story. This one would be a nonfiction book. Alan may have a strong preference for nonfiction, but for Melissa, it was a new challenge. The whole thing was challenging because <laughs> it was, I was so out of my comfort zone. It was something completely different from what I had done before. And I'd never even illustrated a complete book with this sketchbook style that I had. So I just, everything was so challenging. And I, because it was nonfiction, I felt like I really had to get it right. Mark tells the real, though little-known story of Nobu Fujita, the Japanese pilot who flew over Brookings, Oregon twice, dropping two bombs but injuring no one. It happened not long after the attack on Pearl Harbor. Nobu returns to the town later in life, where he begins to forge a bond with the townspeople that continues for the rest of his life. I wanted to get the likeness, of course, of the pilot Nobu. Correct. So I did so much research here, but then I felt like, oh, I need to, I need to go see it for myself. So I went to Brookings, Oregon, and the people there were so nice, and I was able to access this huge trove of photos that span decades from the town and pictures of Nobu and his family and his visit and as well as the town. And I got to visit the bomb site in person, which was amazing. And I also drove along the Oregon coast up north to, to visit my dad later and I took photos along the way. So one of the photos I took is of the the lighthouse that is a important feature in the book. And so one of my 
favorite spreads is the spread when Nobu returns to Brookings many years later and flies during the day. And you see a little plane next to the, near the lighthouse. In the story, Nobu spends much of his life after the war keeping his bombing mission a secret, even from his family. But when he is invited back to Brookings by the townspeople for a memorial event, he gets the opportunity to fly over Brookings one more time, this time just for the joy. The spread is two pages. Over a vast watercolor Pacific, we find Nobu's plane in flight. In his later years, Nobu made a number of contributions to the town detailed in the final pages. He donates to the town library and even hosts some students from Brookings at his home in Tokyo. Nobu's travels remind me of grandfather's journey. Grandfather travels. But no matter where he is, something calls him back to the other home, the mountains of Japan or the mountains of California. It's kind of a symbolic of the transient life of Americans, isn't it? It's moving around. It's kind of, it's modern life, or perhaps it's not modern. It's human nature to travel. And my mother had always wanted to stay in one place. And the poor woman, thanks to her father, moved around. And I don't know, I've inherited that spirit the characteristic it's an identification or perhaps I conveniently use my grandfather to tell my story all the wanderings that I've done there's a bit of similarity between us love of birds which I didn't acquire until recently but well Kozo of course in his newest book Kozo the Sparrow we follow a little boy who rescues a baby sparrow from the neighborhood bullies. He cares for the bird. But we first get a glimpse of Alan's connection to birds in Grandfather's journey. It's before he returns to Japan, before the destruction of the war. It's the afternoon. Alan's grandfather stares longingly out of the window. On several tables behind him are five bird cages, some housing one or two birds, some more. It says, He remembered the mountains and the rivers of his home. He surrounded himself with songbirds, but he could not forget. On the next page, the familiar ocean backdrop. He's journeying again, this time a wife beside him and a daughter on his arm. It's as if, like a songbird, he's flying home. Now, Alan's inherited love of birds is taking center stage in Kozo the Sparrow. The book may be new, but the story isn't. And I had carried that story with me since I was seven years old. Oh, eight, eight. The war had ended, yes. It was soon after the war, 1945. And the beginning of the story happens very much the way I tell it. And... I had him for about a a year and a half, actually, in real life. And I will not tell you how it ended. If Grandfather's journey is any indication, though, we know that for Alan, 
birds tend not to stay caged for long. Such is Kozo's fate. In the end, the little boy saves him one more time by saying goodbye. I asked Alan what the ending means to him. I think it probably has to do with where I am in my life. My daughter just turned 43, September 25th. I'm talking about a few days ago. And she was born when I was 43. In other words, we've come a full circle. A circle that is made only once in my lifetime anyway. And so, in a symbolic gesture, I sent her my prized fountain pen, which I rewarded myself with the publication of Grandfather's Journey in 1993. It's a special edition Mont Blanc Octavian. And I just sent that to my daughter, the mighty pen, you know, the mightier than you know what, okay? I'm passing it to her. It's the same gesture. And that's, I think it has to do with the fact where I am. I'm paring down, okay? Toward the end of Grandfather's journey, our narrator, Alan, is born. He tells us of the last time he saw his grandfather. The last time I saw him, my grandfather said that he longed to see California one more time. He never did. By the end of the story, it's as though Alan's grandfather has passed his own journey onto his grandson when Alan travels to California for himself, just as Alan passes his prized pen to his daughter. He tells us in the last pages. <laughs> the funny thing is, the moment I am in one country, I am homesick for another. In the last couple decades, children's literature in the U.S. has become increasingly populated with diverse characters, authors, and illustrators. But 30 years ago, Alan was making diverse characters and stories when few authors and illustrators were. The broadened representation in children's literature we see today is owed to artists like Alan and Melissa. Well, I think Grandfather's Journey is just a beautiful story of growing up with two different cultures and this concept of home and belonging. And I think it's just as powerful today and relevant today. You know, immigration is one of the foundations of our country. And I think it's a valuable and relatable story for kids who are from immigrant families as well as kids whose families came to this country many generations ago. When I asked Alan what it means to him that Grandfather's Journey is a classic, that it will continue to be read and cherished for many years to come, he said this. Well, it was such an accidental career. If, if I can call it, I don't like that word career either for other reasons. But anyhow, it's all accidental. I did not become what I am today intentionally. But on the other hand, he says, there are moments that feel intentional. He tells me about coming across a picture he'd been looking for for years of a woman named Miss Irwin. That, he suggests, was a moment when his trajectory felt intentional. I'm just giving you one example. It says as though I had taken those two pictures 
40-some, 35 years ago, with a specific purpose to be used today. You know, am I making any sense? But when you live long enough and look back, it's so many incidents, so many different events seem to have that kind of meaning. It's, well, it goes along with this longing to find meaning in your existence. There comes in memory. Memory is everything. A lot of it is painful. And uh, I, I say this in one of the interviews that I gave some time ago. I think it was drawing from memory, actually. Somebody asked me, and I was talking about this, and the memory for most people is selective oblivion. They forget conveniently what's too painful. Well, artists don't have that option. We remember everything. That probably explains the fact that most of us are pretty sick. And But in my case, my work keeps me relatively sane. That, and very rarely, a really good question from a young reader. There's only one, actually, the most startling one, and it was asked by a fourth-grade English girl in Tokyo, Japan, in one of those international schools, sitting on the gym floor with a bunch of other kids. She raised her hand. Mr. Say, when you're painting, are you always trying to make new colors? And that's, I said, my mouth open. Who is that child? Yeah, that's the most amazing thing that was asked of me. And of course, yeah, I'm like a chef, you know, who's trying to create a new flavor that's never been savored by anyone. We hope Alan continues to grace us with new flavors. And Melissa, too. If you're lucky and you catch Melissa at a book signing, you might even get to taste some natto for yourself. From one country to another, and one generation to the next, we find our histories, whether real or imagined, memory or fiction. For some of us, our pasts become unobservable. For most of us, there's a record. The hospital where you were born, a school you attended, something that says you were here. In his Caldecott acceptance speech, Alan remembered going back to his old hometown to find no record of him in his school's photo album. Part of his personal history, it seemed, didn't exist. There are many ways that we build our histories. Certain particulars might be largely out of our power, our parentage, parts of our personalities. But how we choose to remember our histories tends to create something real and true, however fictional, like an old folktale. Alan tells me something else he mentioned in that same speech. I have a hard time distinguishing between fiction and real life to begin with, as I always had difficulty distinguishing my dream life from waking life. I much rather prefer to be in the fantasy world, of course. On the last page of Grandfather's Journey, Alan says, quote, I think I know my grandfather now, unquote. And you know, I think I do too. Want more of your favorite authors? 
check out our other episodes and remember reading with us because some stories never get old. Tell us what you think on Twitter at ReadingPod. That's R-E-A-D-I-N-G-P-O-D. Or you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. This episode of Remember Reading is produced by my colleagues at HarperCollins. Nellie Kurtzman, Colleen O'Connell, Elba Luz, Kate O'Sullivan, and Tamara Mays. And special thanks to Podfly for their production support. I'm Lisa DeSaro. Thanks for listening.